0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 13, Some Enchanted Burmese Election.
1: Hey
2: hey listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Hocktie who we hocktie. Leave Pedro when we leave Pedro. And today I'll be talking about Season 1, Number 13,
0: Some Enchanted Evening, which was originally aired on May 13th, 1990. And I'm going to be telling the story of the 1990 elections in Myanmar, otherwise known as Burma, that took place on the 27th of May, 1990, two weeks after some enchanted evening first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can
2: tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And we've had some eels and some tweets. Um, In fact, we've got a whole load of people to mention this week, so I'll, uh, I'll get started. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly we got proof of Marge's rabbit ears from the Simpsons arcade game which uh, we mentioned in the previous episode that was courtesy of Marissa so thank you very much Marissa
0: yep that's on the blog if you want to see it
2: yep yep it's, it's all there um, Timothy Burleson reached out on Twitter to say just found you guys a month or so ago and am now caught up with all the episodes I was studying history at uni in 1990 when I became a Simpsons fan I'd love your take on the reviews Now, if ever we had a target audience, there he is. So thank you very much for that. That really livened up a dreary Tuesday morning
0: for me. What are the chances of that? A Simpsons fan who studied history in 1990. That's brilliant. Ticks all the boxes. I know we've mentioned him before, but I need to mention Neil again, Mr. Sandwich, uh, for, well, he got in touch to point out that something that you'd missed about Krusty's prisoner number. Yes. I seem to remember.
2: Yes, he did indeed. Uh, So thank you very much for that. Um... That was a shocking oversight on my part, of course. <laughs> but uh, there we go. Uh, we also had Cat Ford get in touch um, to ask about fourth wall breaking moments in The Simpsons. Uh, how often does it break the fourth wall? And what are your opinions on cartoons breaking the fourth wall? Now, uh, this was in response to a, uh, an article on something similar to BuzzFeed, which had a, a few sort of uh, fourth wall breaking moments. Uh, I like them myself um, uh, Rick and Morty uh, Pokemon... And Phineas and Ferb, all of whom I think were were in said uh, article, I think they do it uh, more often and better than The Simpsons. But um, when it comes to The Simpsons, my favourite is definitely in uh, Who Shot Mr Burns Part 2, when Julius (laughs) Hibbert looks directly at the camera and says, well, I can't possibly solve this crime. Can you?
0: Can you? At
2: which point the camera pulls back to reveal he's actually pointing at Chief Wiggum.
0: Yes. (laughs) What about you, Tom? Fourth wall breaking. Um, I don't really think I've got anything to add to that. They they, they kind of stayed away from fourth wall breaking, certainly early Simpsons. I I just, I'm I'm not a massive fan of fourth wall breaking because it's, especially if a cartoon starts relying on it, it can just get a little bit lazy. Like like when it first happens, they go, oh, that's not supposed to happen. And then you get over the shock and just go, that's a bit rubbish really, wasn't it? So, excellent. Thank you very much, Cap. Um, if anybody else has any questions
2: or, or chat, we had some MC Scat Cat chat as well. <laughs> um, and we also went to the QED convention last weekend and actually actually met some of our listeners um, but by accident. It's not like we were kind of scheduled speakers or anything like that. But, yeah, it, no. was, it was really nice to um, meet some people who were appreciating our work.
0: Yes, um, yes. Now, Now, we should explain what QED is. QED is a sceptics conference that is put on in Manchester every year, but not next year, confusingly enough. It's been going for about eight years, and it's just like the epicentre of the sceptic universe, I suppose, at the moment. And people flying from all all over the world from it, and it's a brilliant community, absolutely fantastic event. I want to say thanks to the people who put it on for putting it on. It's a great time. I, I, I certainly identify as a sceptic. I'm Skeptic Canary on Twitter, and I've sort of been using that handle for about eight years, I suppose. Uh, Gareth, I know you go to sceptics. Would you consider yourself a sceptic? Yeah, 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 in that I'm highly sceptical. Yeah, good, good. That's all it takes. <laughs> Excellent.
2: And uh, finally, and we will get to the episode in a second, I promise you, I'd just like to uh, recommend a couple of quality products that I picked up in the last week. Number one is by a fellow Simpsons podcast, uh, the people from the Everything's Coming Up Simpsons podcast, that being Ali Gertz and Julia Prescott. I've just picked up their book, 100 Things the Simpsons Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Because I've been busy this week, I've only got to number three, but so far it's really good. Uh, And I love that podcast, and you should all listen to it once you've listened to this. Don't stop now and go and listen to their podcast. Just, just in case you'd ever come back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the second product was The Long Quiz Goodnight, a quiz book by a friend of the podcast, Ben Baker. You can find him on Twitter, at BenBakerBooks. And that, too, is fantastic. But, again, I haven't had much of a chance to read it. Nothing to do with the quality of the products, just to do with the fact that I like to spend a lot of time drinking and playing Dragon Quest at
1: the moment. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Well, well, we should say the reason why this show is about a week late is because is because we were both at QED, and it takes up... Quite a lot of time staying up till four in the morning singing "Your the Voice by John Farnham.
2: <laughs> well, at least you got your pipes warmed up.
0: Oh, yes. Um, and
2: I'll just leave that hanging there. Mm. So, finally, let's get on to what we're uh, here to talk about in the first place. Season 1, episode 13, Some Enchanted Evening, as aired originally on May the 13th, 1990. Another two-week gap between the previous episode and this. And just as I get on to talking about the episode, I have to pause because I hear people saying, Well, Gareth, what was number one in the UK at the time when this first aired? Well, it's a real wrench for me because at number two this time, we had Kylie Minogue with arguably her best offering Better the Devil You Know, which I'd love to have discussed. But at number one, it's Killer by Adamski. Oh, yeah, nice. So dance DJ Adamski given name Adam Tinley, does the music and production on this, but the very distinctive lead vocal on the track is provided by Seal, given name Henry Samuel, a former blues singer who had taken some time out to travel and arrived back in Britain to find a niche in the nascent rave scene. It was a smash throughout Europe and was covered by George Michael, at a Wembley Arena show in 1991, a performance which segued into Papa Was a Rolling Stone and was later released on 1993's Five Live EP, which was subsequently played in every single clothes shop in Britain on a constant loop for about five years. <laughs> Other versions were done by ATB, Sugarbabe's, and Seal himself, following a massive spat with Adamski about not being named in the promotion of the original, despite him providing the lead vocal and the lyrics. Mm. which made him decide to re-record and re-release it almost immediately in the
0: run-up to his debut album.
1: Mm. For
0: me, the only thing about that song that's possibly more distinctive than the lyrics and the vocals is that opening bass line. dun 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 that is it, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. That is, that, that's the Good. one,
2: definitely, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's the thing. It really is a, a product of two creators, that one. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I can see why Seal felt a little bit aggrieved. Yeah, uh, But he would later go on to be a worldwide star, albeit in the beautiful South style of everyone seeming to have his records, but no one wanting to own up to listening to them. <laughs> Plus he would go on to nail Heidi Klum and do Kiss from a Rose off one of the Batman soundtracks which is best known for me by being featured in a hilarious scene in the excellent, then later on pretty mediocre, sitcom community. Uh, and Adamski still seems to be recording. He, he hadn't done that in 2015.
0: Did he really? I can't
2: imagine it was a big seller. But
0: no. Know, one for the no,
2: aficionados there.
0: No. I once saw a brand of cheese called Edamski, but I, I don't think that was a play on words. I think it was just, like, Polish or something.
2: Oh, that's che- a shame cheese I'm, I'm, facts I think more uh, rock acts should have cheese tires
0: <laughs> if anyone can think of any uh, rock band cheese puns yes please send us your cheese puns I need cheese cheese puns rock bands um uh, uh quark instead of queen nah no, don't do that <laughs> we'll, we'll get some crackers yeah. well, which go well with cheese? oh yeah definitely so, uh,
2: <laughs> uh, US viewership Let's steady steady the ship here. Yeah, yeah. US viewership. Nielsen rating 15.4, the highest rated Fox show of the week, seen by approximately 14.2 million viewers. So again, we don't get to talk about Married With Children. Oh, what? Which is a shame, as I'd far rather talk about that than this episode. Production number 7G01. Yeah. Yes. What's
0: going on there?
2: Finally. The point I've been priming everybody (laughs) for for 13 episodes. Some of you thought I was crazy. Some of you even requested a transfer to another podcast. (laughs) But here we are. The last episode of season one was meant to be the debut episode of The Simpsons. But the animation was delivered in such a poor state that it was sent back for extensive changes. And I watched that early version on the DVD extras and it is dog rough.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm surprised it still exists. You'd have thought they'd they'd want to put it in the bin and just hide it from the world as soon as that happened.
2: Yeah, I I wouldn't have wanted to own up to that one. Yeah. But but there we go, there we go. The chalkboard gag is I will not yell fire in a crowded classroom.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Solid advice. Yeah. Well, well, well talking about sceptics, that's uh, that's almost a little throw to uh, to Christopher Hitchens when he's talking about free speech. He says, uh, "Would you yell fire in a in a crowded theatre? So, uh, yeah. Ooh. Nice little sceptic tie in there. Excellent. Maybe. And the couch gag.
2: There is no gag. They just sit down. See? Because it's the first episode.
0: Ah, that's what you were trying to say. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh. See, and, and it didn't even... The pieces didn't even fall into place for me uh, until mm. I until I was watching it earlier. Um, but there we go, yeah. So they, kick, they do kick off with the uneventful one, thus setting up the joke for all the other couch gags, but... Because it's on the first episode, we don't see it until the end. Ah, uh, it all so makes sense. Absolute madness. See. The writers were Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodowski, again, mm-hmm. as per last week, and as per our third episode, The Morris Worms Odyssey. So what actually happens? Well, we open with Bill Pye in the sky. I assume that's Arnie Pye's cousin. Talking about the chaos wrought by an overturned melon truck as the soundtrack to A Chaotic Simpson Breakfast. All flying donuts, forgotten lunches and stolen money. An unappreciated Marge is left with the debris and decides to vent to a radio call-in show presented by... Dr. Marvin Monroe. Mm. Making a third unwanted appearance in a single season. I don't believe that's a record he'll break, thankfully. No. Anyway, she calls 555-Pain and just edges ahead of second caller Paul C. Described as a nail-biter, not his own, to make it to the air, and describes Homer's descent into slobbish middle age and her own discontent. But Homer hears the call and realises it is him, largely due to Marge using his real name before belatedly renaming him Pedro. (laughs) Even his poorly drawn, discoloured friends at the bar agree that Homer is a pig. But Mo suggests a night on the town, with candles, a tablecloth, the whole nine yards. Homer buys a single rose and candy and returns home so late that Marge started roaring at the children. But she appreciates his minimal efforts and a date is arranged. They will dine at Chez Paris and go mambo dancing as long as they can find a babysitter. And the... Oh God, how many takes will I need here? Rubber Baby Buggy Bumper Babysitting Service. Nice. I don't make this easy for myself, do I? No. <laughs> is good to go. Though Homer is forced to lie about the family name, as they are well aware of Bart, Lisa, and Maggie Simpson's brattishness. And hark! For their babysitter, the mysterious Ms. Bots has arrived, oddly carrying two empty suitcases. As per Marge's orders, Maggie is put straight to bed, and Bart and Lisa can watch the happy little elves meets the curious bear cub. Which brings me to my usual 90s alternative comedy reference the name of said adventure always reminds me of the Furry Honeypot Adventure, as mistakenly rented by Eddie Hitler in Bottom. <laughs> as Marge and Homer enjoy another bottle of Shaperie's second cheapest champagne, and the smooth sounds of the Larry David experience, before retiring to Ye old Off-Ramp Inn, <laughs> Bart tires of the elves and turns over to watch America's most armed and dangerous whereupon he sees a segment on the Babysitter Bandit, and yes, absolutely no surprises here, it's their babysitter. We then get the most Hanna-Barbera sequence of the series so far, with lots of running and screaming and searching and trap-laying and whatnot, after which the kids are captured and sentenced to a further playthrough of the Happy Little Elves. Maggie, of all people, saves them, escaping her crib and untying her siblings, once the Happy Little Elves are finished. In a surprisingly solid plan, Bart lures BOTS to the basement and batters her Bots with a baseball bat, blacking out the babysitter bandit, and the kids rush to a payphone to call 1-800-U-SQUEAL. Bart drinks home, but the phone has been disabled. Worried, the parents return home to find Ms BOTS tied up, having the elves inflicted on her. Homer assumes this is their monkey shines again and frees the criminal, who flees just as the police are arriving. Homer dresses this up as a momentous struggle for the TV cameras, but is captioned, Homer Simpson, local boob, nonetheless. Just as Homer despairs, Marge notes that anyone who raised three kids who could knock out and hogtie a perfect stranger must be doing something right. And that's season one, folks. We are done. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, this episode had to be pieced together, mainly from sugar packets. (laughs) And you could really tell... Things disappear. Shadows are in the wrong place. Things change colour. You can really see the cracks. I always yep. thought this episode looked weird compared to the others around it. And now I know why.
0: Yeah. Moe's neck is coming out of his chest at one point. There's one thing I noticed with Dr. Marvin Monroe because there's a bit of self-awareness. Because he says... Um, uh, I'm sure my voice is annoying. Yeah, and I, and I originally seeing that think for well, okay. After the whole series, yeah, they, they know that Marvin Marvin Monroe's annoying, and they've you know, and they've made a reference to it. But no, it's the very
1: first one.
0: Yeah, so I, think, so I, I wonder whether I, I have read that the
2: actor. uh and, and this is rubbish of me. I can't actually remember which one it is, but it's obviously one of the Simpsons um, regulars. Mm. The, the actor who played it was actually in pain doing that voice, and you can sort of see why. It's a very gravelly, but high-pitched and nasally voice yeah, at the same it, time. Yeah, it,
0: it's, 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 it's the amount of pressure that you would have to put through your larynx to... It's it's horrible to do, and I just did it for half a second. I do wonder whether that was part of the reason
2: Marvin Rumro was possibly killed off. We're still not sure if he's been killed off or not, but it certainly doesn't appear very often going yeah. forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a relief, frankly. Would you like to hear about some character debuts? Yes, please. The very obvious one here is Lucille Botskowski, or Ms. Bots.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: With a grotesque design and virtual disappearance after one episode, we're definitely talking a season one character. Very lanky and bendy in design as well. Quite unlike even an early one-off character like Jacques or Cowboy Bob. Mm-hmm. At least the voice actor is interesting. It's Penny Marshall, who has had a massive career in television and film as an actor, director, and producer, including the role of Laverne in the well-remembered sitcom Laverne and Shirley, which was a spin-off from Happy Days. She also has directing credits for Big and A League of Their Own. She had an odd start, though. Her big break was in a Head & Shoulders commercial, playing the before person, with Farrah Fawcett as the after. (laughs) And her career has clearly peaked now with her 2015 casting as The Elder in Scooby-Doo and Kiss Rock and Roll Mystery.
0: What? That's not a thing. That's
2: a thing, yep. Uh, uh... Scooby-Doo's also uh, appeared with the WWF superstars... Sorry, WWE superstars these days. (laughs) Um, Okay. So there we go. Uh, Lucille has had two more appearances. A non-speaking cameo in Hurricane Neddy as a patient in Calmwood Mental Hospital and in The Simpsons Guy, which is not an episode of The Simpsons, but is the crossover with Family Guy. And thus this rubbish character is technically also part of Family Guy canon. Oh, and she's also a boss in the terrible video game Bart vs. the Space Mutants.
0: Oh, is she now? Okay. Yes,
2: yes. Um, this also would have been the debut of Moe and Barney, but both popped up in earlier screened, though later made episodes. Let's talk about Mo for a second, though. Not a full rundown, we can save that for now. But he's a good example of an ongoing phenomenon. So as the show goes on, it's natural that some characters get extra development, new character traits, and so forth. So Mo was never a pervert or suicidal at this stage. But we never really saw him outside the bar for the first few seasons anyway, so we wouldn't have known that. That's natural development, and it happens in all shows with an ongoing narrative but he's also another of the character whose origins have been entirely changed in later episodes. Sometimes Homer didn't know him until the bar opened. Sometimes he was there during Homer's childhood. Sometimes they met as teenagers. Sometimes he reveals he's had a boxing career in a previous decade under the names Kid Gorgeous, Kid Presentable, Kid Gruesome, and finally Kid Moe. <laughs> and sometimes he can possibly have done that because now they are all young in the 90s. But it's this kind of a problem that they run into increasingly these days, the characters don't age, but time moves on. So we're now in a weird situation where there's a canonical future for The Simpsons, but no canonical past. Though I think we'll always hold the way we was, Lisa's first word, and, and Maggie makes three, as the pro- proper Simpson origin stories, no matter how many reinventions we wind up seeing in the future. It's just not something they could even have conceived of back at this point we're examining. As we record this, The Simpsons had just started its 30th season. It's yeah. only going to get more confusing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I remember when I was a kid trying to work out the genealogies, and I remember getting Bart down as born in 1980 and Lisa in 82, which would make her my age, and I'm now 36. so
1: <laughs> So it's
0: like <laughs> Lisa in The Simpsons now should be 36 and... Maybe like have a job and have kids and whatever, but no, she's still eight. It's just, oh, uh, it's just stop it, it's gone on for too long. <laughs> we get the idea.
2: Uh, oh, we also get not one, but two mo prank calls in this episode. We do. Uh, alcoholic being the first, and Oliver off the second mm. and, and labour of the two, I think. Mo uses the insult Rat Jackass after the first, which I must try to bring into my own slur rotation, as it's mm. a doozy. <laughs> um, would you like a couple of Digi-knows? There's not many this week. Yeah, go on. The censors at Fox wanted to remove the line The blue thing with the things, which described Marge's boudoir attire, as it was believed to be too sexual. They were fine with melon wrestling in the opening, though. (laughs) Yeah. Also, a lot of the episode is said to ape The Night of the Hunter, a Robert Mitchum film from 1955. But I've never seen that, so I don't know whether that's the case or not.
0: Okay. Citation needed. Yeah. I'm just surprised if there's a film that you haven't seen.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. Yeah. Um, And now, on to our final historical episode of the season... The Burmese election.
0: Yes, absolutely. OK, so so we've just had the final Simpsons episode of series one. And now we're going to have the final story, final history story of season one of Retrospecticus. In Southeast Asia lies a country called Myanmar. And I can get away with the pronunciations this week because apparently there are nine different ways of saying that word in English. So I can say whatever I want and I'll get it right in someone's vocabulary. Can you do all nine? No. no. Uh, it, well, well, the main one I sort of oscillate between is Myanmar and Myanmar. I've no idea what the rest of them are. I guess you could put emphasis on different syllables. So yeah, Myanmar, yeah. something like that. Yeah, I suppose so. So anyway, Myanmar is also known as Burma. More on the name later, because it's, it's not as clear-cut as some people might think. To the west of it lies India and Bangladesh. To the north there is China, and to the east there is Laos, and finally Thailand. It has a population of over 50 million, and its capital is Naypyidaw. Its largest city is Yangon, more commonly known as Rangoon in English. The Irrawaddy River runs pretty much the entire length of the country, from its source in the north to its delta on the south coast. The country has a very complicated history, so here's a very quick summary. In the middle of the 9th century... The Bamar people founded a settlement at Pagan on the Irrawaddy River, and I'm assuming that's pronounced Pagan but to distinguish it from Pagan, which it isn't. <laughs> Over the following centuries, the settlement grew and the area around it became the Pagan Kingdom, which was founded by King Rafra in the 1050s, and I know I've got that right because he's in the Civilization Games. This was followed by a Golden Age of sorts, with the Burmese language becoming dominant in the area. In addition, Theravada Buddhism spread throughout the kingdom. The Pagan rulers built over 10,000 Buddhist temples during this time, and about 2,000 remain. That's a good strike rate, considering how old they are. Mm, Yeah. The power and the influence of the Pagan kingdom remained until they started to go into decline during the mid-13th century. And the reason given for this is tax-free religious wealth. I mean, tax-free religious wealth is a good reason for for anything bad happening, I think. <laughs> Shortly after, the kingdom faced a series of invasions, including from the Mongols, the first being in 1277. Without a dominant power, the region went into a state of political fragmentation that lasted for two and a half centuries. The Ava kingdom... Hanfawadi Kingdom and Shan states all competed against each other for control of the area. In the mid-16th century, a former vassal state of Ava, Tawungu, came to prominence. They defeated the Hanfawadi and became a major power not only in Burma, but also vast swathes of Southeast Asia. Toungu would maintain its importance until 1752, when the restored Hanfawadi sacked the city of Ava. Pretty much immediately after this, the Konbaung dynasty was founded, and it fought a war against the Hanthawedi. After success in this war, the Konbaung became the dominant power in Burma, fighting a war against Siam in 1855, you know, modern day Thailand, in the east, and expanding westwards into Manipur and Assam, towards the border of what at the time was British India. Competition between the two powers, as well as the commercial interests of the British East India Company, precipitated the first Anglo-Burmese war in 1824. Although the British won the war, 15,000 British and Indian troops died, and the cost of it, over a million pounds, caused severe economic problems for British India. The treaties signed by the Burmese called for them to cede territory, sign a commercial treaty and pay a war indemnity of a million pounds. This made the previously strong Burmese empire severely weakened, Further wars against the British would follow in 1852 and 1885 with the British annexing Burma in the aftermath of the final war. There was a large amount of resentment for British rule largely because the British didn't respect Burmese Buddhist traditions. For example, they refused to take their shoes off when entering a Buddhist stupa. In 1937, Burma became a colony of Britain in its own right separately administered from British India. Its first Prime Minister was Ba Moor who was against British involvement and supported Burmese independence? Also active at this time was Aung San, a political leader and founder of the Communist Party of Burma. Aung San was forced to flee Burma after the British put out an arrest warrant for him. He went to China, then Japan. Then the Second World War rolled around, and the threat from the Empire of Japan was fairly obvious. Aung San was originally on the Japanese side. ...and founded the Burma Independence Army in Bangkok, Thailand. Barmore was opposed to Burmese involvement in the war and was arrested for sedition. The Second World War would prove devastating for Burma with an estimated 250,000 civilian casualties. The Japanese entered Rangoon in March 1942 and placed Barmore in charge of the puppet government. Over the course of the Japanese occupation, the Burmese Independence Army was reorganised a couple of times first into the Burma Defence Army, then the Burma National Army. Over the course of the war, both Barmore and Ong Sang became disillusioned with the Japanese and joined up with communist and socialist leaders to form the anti-fascist organisation. They rose up against the Japanese on March 27th 1945 and allied with the British and in turn the Soviet Union. By May 1945, the Japanese had largely been expelled from Burma. And around this time, Ong San had a daughter. More on her later. Following the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, World War II ended and Burma was administered by the military. The British governor, Sir Reginald Dorman Smith, who couldn't have a more British name if he tried, so so he returned as governor. This unsurprisingly was unpopular with the Burmese and shortly afterwards the police went on strike. To address the situation Aung San was invited to join the governor's executive council. So so he's coming in with the British there. This worked to a degree and they began discussing independence. So independence was agreed in 1947 following the signing of the Aung San Attlee agreement. So Clement Attlee obviously. However, before the agreement kicked in, Aung San and several members of his cabinet were assassinated. The socialist leader, Thakin Nu, formed a cabinet instead, and Burma became independent on January 4th, 1948. Unlike India and Pakistan, it declined to join the Commonwealth. The independent Burma soon ran into problems. There were communist insurgencies in the north and plenty of political disagreements in parliament. Democracy held until March 2nd, 1962, when the General Ni Win staged a coup and had the heads of government arrested. This was protested against, and the army put down a protest at Rangoon University that saw over 100 students killed. Ni Win established the Burmese Socialist Programme Party, or the BSPP, and ran it as the only party in a one-party state with the military in control, and all commerce and industry was nationalised. Win retired from the military in 1972, but continued to run the BSPP. A new constitution was adopted in 1974, which called for the creation of a People's Assembly in 1976. Win headed it up and was officially the president of Burma. I love calling it the People's Assembly. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it's like these days, if you want to make something dull, call it the People's something or other the people's laundrette, something like that. And then if you want to make something dull, put assembly at the end. Back in those days, it sounded revolutionary. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So, so Niewin's in charge, but, you know, he's just reorganised things a bit. This year also saw a series of strikes and protests against the government, as corruption and food shortages were rife. There was even a conspiracy amongst more junior members of the army to assassinate Niewin, The conspirators were discovered and subsequently executed. 1978 saw an operation against the Rohingya Muslims in the west of the country. Bangladesh had recently become independent, and the Burmese government was deeply untrustworthy towards what it called foreigners. Thousands were rounded up by Burmese forces, and approximately 200,000 people fled to Bangladesh. A few months later, the governments of Burma and Bangladesh reached an agreement, and around 180,000 Rohingya returned to their homes. In 1981, Win retired as the president of Burma, but remained the chairman of the BSPP, therefore retaining his power. He unexpectedly stepped down in 1988. By this time, Burma was in the middle of an economic crisis, caused in part, and this is really weird, caused in part by Win banning all banknotes which weren't multiples of nine. So, Um. So only 45 and 90 banknotes were legal tender. Now, now okay. I don't. Now I don't know exactly why he did that. the The main reason I can think of is that the country was deep in economic trouble, and they were after like anything auspicious that they could do. And someone thought, right, nine's a good number, good auspicious number. So let's ban all currency that doesn't have anything to do with the number nine. I
2: seem to remember nine's quite big in numerology as well mm. although i suppose most numbers are really given that yeah. it is numerology yeah uh, but yeah so, so it could have been some kind of
0: superstition as well it could have been could have been so with a lot of the money rendered redundant demonstrations and riots became commonplace and the civil administration collapsed this was followed by the 8888 uprising which saw the military kill thousands as General Saul Maung staged a coup and imposed martial law. Ironically enough, the government from this point on was known as the State Peace and Development Council. Just out of interest, why was it the 8888? Uh, that's a very good question. It was in 1988, so that's where one of them comes from. Okay. I think... Oh, I'll double-check this, but I'm pretty sure it's because it was the 8th of August eighty-eight.
2: Oh, that makes sense. So the
0: 8th of the 8th, 88. The council rewrote the constitution and called for a general election to be held on the 27th of May 1990, two weeks after some enchanted evening was first held. Now, even though Ni Win is out of the picture, that date was chosen because of the auspicious nature of the number 9. Ah, 2 and 7. Exactly, it's on the 27th, 2 and 7 equals 9, and it's the 4th Sunday of the 5th month. Oh. So four plus five equals nine. They were that tenuous. Okay, so mathematics aside, what am I talking about? That's not mathematics. That's <laughs> that's adding some numbers. And you call yourself a sceptic. Yeah, well. absolutely. Anyway, the ruling Hunter favoured the National Unity Party. and I just want to pause to consider how great the word Hunter is. That is a very satisfying word to say. One of my very favourites. mm. Yeah. mm. The ruling junta favoured the National Unity Party. So, you know, that's the military's party. However, the National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the daughter of Aung San, ah. from earlier, polled nearly 8 million votes and won. The NUP got nearly 3 million votes, so the NLD won by a landslide. Of course, the military respected the vote, stepped aside, and Aung San Suu Kyi became president. Only joking! The elected assembly was not allowed to convene and Aung San Suu Kyi was placed under house arrest. Yay, democracy! The international community tried to influence the military to respect the election, tried to place sanctions on Burma, and awarded Aung San Suu Kyi the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. Despite this, the generals wouldn't budge. The military replaced Saw Mao with Fan Shui in 1995. Fan Shui oversaw some very limited relaxing of restrictions, freeing a few political prisoners and releasing Aung San Suu Kyi from house arrest under the condition that she stayed in Rangoon. The following years saw real little change, with Aung San Suu Kyi going in and out of house arrest and the NLD facing various government crackdowns. In 2005, the government began building a new capital in the centre of the country, away from Rangoon. The city is the capital of Myanmar to this day, and it's called Nyapidor. Now that's now I still think that's kind of a weird thing to do. It's not unusual because Brazil and Australia have done it, but I would just love to visit that city. It's like a city built by Burmese generals, you know, completely inorganically, got nothing to do with with people or the landscape or anything like that. They just went, right, we'll have a city here. sounds a little bit like uh Stevenage Newtown to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or Milton Keynes. I bet it's got roundabouts everywhere. (laughs) Anyway. So 2007 saw peaceful protests against the government triggered by a sharp rise in fuel prices and led by the much-revered Buddhist monks. The government cracked down on these protests and many people were killed. A year later, in 2008, Cyclone Nargis hit. Around 130,000 people were killed and a million left homeless. The military were roundly criticised by the UN... For hampering relief efforts. The early 2010s, however, did see a loosening of the grip of the military government. Aung San Suu Kyi and other political prisoners were released, press censorship was relaxed, and workers were allowed to unionise. Because of this, US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and unfortunately not future president, visited the country in 2011, followed by President Barack Obama in 2012. While the military still held control of around a quarter of the seats in in the Burmese parliament, the rest of them were contested in the general election of 2015. The NLD won the election in a landslide, ensuring a majority in both the upper and lower houses. The current Burmese constitution bars Aung San Suu Kyi from becoming president as her late husband and children are foreign citizens, but instead she holds the title of state councillor, making her the de facto head of the Burmese government. More recent events, however, have led to criticism of Aung San Suu Kyi and a tarnish to her reputation as a woman of peace. In 2016, the Myanmar military once again began to crack down on the Rohingya. They have since been accused of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Aung San Suu Kyi's reaction has ranged from silence to ambivalence, and she has been accused of legitimising genocide. Various organisations have retracted their awards, including Oxford and Dublin city councils and the Canadian government. And There's also calls for her Nobel Peace Prize to be taken away, but no one's ever done that before. So there we are, a 1990 election and the current state of Myanmar. I wish I could end the series on a more positive note, but I'm af- but I'm afraid I can't. You can't really get away from genocide. You can't really make that cheery, can you? No. Goodbye, folks. That's a-
2: <laughs> no. Uh, we knowing that we were coming to a bit of a serious climax, there. Uh, we decided to have. A little bit of a wrap-up at the end. Mm-hmm. I have a bit of a talk about the first season of The Simpsons in general. Um, the way I see it, it I mean, it's, it's rough and ready. Uh, it's a product that I think was probably created with the looming threat of immediate cancellation over it. It was at a time when the Fox network wasn't the kind of world-straddling, Disney-bought thing that it is today, was more the the scrappy upstart of American network television. Uh, And I I think all of that shows. When we get to season two, you can legitimately start saying that all the ingredients are there, and they're just looking for that sprinkle of transcendent magic. But here, well, it's a learning process. Mm -hmm. The voices and some of the character and building designs and the structure of Springfield plus some of the characterization is all fundamentally different to how it would be, and I'm talking as soon as seasons three and four, really. And looking back now, it all really seems off, but that's probably because we've done 29 series of it afterwards where it was a bit more together mm. as a vision. Um, it was a, a different Simpsons, I think. One, there was uh, arguably a more realistic take on the great American sitcom, uh, family life in the late 80s and early 90s, more than the sort of surreal, occasionally satirical thing that it's become now, so it's a it's a curio. Uh, it's not a welcome viewing from that perspective, I'd say. What, what do you reckon?
0: Mm, yeah, definitely. De- it's it's definitely rough and ready. There are sort of hints of how good it was going to be. So so you've got the one with Lisa Simpson where she meets Bleeding Gums Murphy. That episode for me is great because of the subject matter you know because the theme of it is depression and you know what primetime shows were dealing with depression in in that era you know it, it it would be very serious and it would be and it would be very very good but series two is where it is where it picks up a lot and there is another lisa episode in series two which is lisa's substitute and I don't know how I'm going to get through when we do that episode because I am in pieces with that every time. Oh, especially when she reads the note from Mr. Bergstrom.
2: <laughs> oh, Handkerchiefs at the ready for that yeah. One. Um. Yeah, season two, fantastic. We've got Bart the Daredevil coming up in that as well, which is the, the first episode of The Simpsons that I, I saw a really, really sort of struck a chord with mm. me. So that's that's good. Uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to Bart Gets an F, actually, the very first episode of season two, I seem to remember, is uh, is pretty good. There's still a few uh, sort of filler episodes, I'd say, in there. But mm-hmm. um, all, altogether, I think it's, uh, it's all downhill from here for a bit. Uh, that's in terms of ease of watching rather than quality, obviously, mm. which is going uphill. But, um, well, you, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, would I recommend that a non-fan started... By watching uh, season one, absolutely not. No, I would say season three minimum. Arguably, not until the animators change and give the show the, the sort of the final bit of uh, polish mm. that we associate with it indelibly today. Um, but for all all of that, and I've been quite negative, quite negative many a time about this season. I have enjoyed this trip down memory lane even if it's what I won't soon be repeating, it's it's
0: been great. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Now, we are going to be going on a little bit of a hiatus, not too long. Uh, you're off on a foreign trip somewhere. I am, yes. I'm buying a house, which is always a long and rather tedious process, so obviously I'm going to need to dedicate some time to that. Uh, but we will be back maybe November, December time? We might work out a little one-off special. We'll have to see.
2: I should say definitely before
0: Christmas. Oh, definitely before Christmas, yes. Yes.
2: (laughs) So that's good. Um, But, you know, we're going for an extended period at this stage, and you know what they say, Tom?
0: Finish on a song.
1: Well, GDR had done it The Messier had won it, the queue for Moscow Big Macs was quite long. We wondered why that guy was called Bong-Bong, and Thatcher took a pasting when her tax went wrong. It's Retrospecticus, but Baltic's great crescendo, Retrospecticus, Antropov, Anchenenko, Ceaușescu met a sticky end, Mandela began his upward trend. And Argentina, went back to being our friends The Simpsons weren't as funny, when Marge was still a bunny And suicidal Homer was a pain But Krusty getting busted wasn't blame and princess cashmere's dancing was surprisingly tame it's retrospecticus with non-existent writers retrospecticus and cut virus lisa ran away to play the blues and marvin's monroe's brother did tattoos we're talking scat cat and hamster number two it's retrospecticus we hope you didn't hate us retrospecticus for now we're on hiatus tom has gone to buy another home and us off to somewhere you don't know but in december we'll do another show goodbye everybody bye everyone